Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and, in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Gene Chandler, IIDA, as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Gene is an extraordinarily creative and innovative interior designer with a passion for understanding the impact design has on productivity and the success of a business. Gene is way more than a workplace interior designer. She is a hands-on designer, as you will hear, she purchased a 1967 Ford Falcon club wagon, restored it herself, and she moved into a garage and built a wooden loft around it so they could live together. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that in a bit. As the design director of the New York office of Vocon, Gene excels at working closely with organizations with strong brands who desire to celebrate it through a sense of place. She has worked with some of the coolest brands throughout her 17-plus year career. The NBA, Google, Nickelodeon, Dentsu Aegis, Barclays, Bloomberg, The Citadel, and BBC. Oh, and also the Langham Hotel. Jean has also established a community called Womanufacture. Hopefully I said that correctly. I'm going to screw that up several times today. Which is a workshop for women in New York City where she inspires women to learn make and build anything from crafts to bookcases and beyond. Jean, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here and have you tell your story. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Um, what annoys you about working with architects? <laughs> I'll start off by saying I, I admire architecture the most out of all the arts, obviously, or <laughs> I wouldn't be here. Um, you know, in my own pursuit of my career and my education, I found myself like really chasing the topic of architecture, but always stopping just short <laughs> of, um, I guess, that kind of Goliath that it is. And I prefer to kind of live around the edges of it. Um, and I feel like I've found myself as a good pair Sure. to architecture and architects mm -hmm. and i'm always kind of asking the why around it um you know my experience in working with architects is and this is what makes architects you know prevalent and strong is there's always this one kind of grand solution or there's always this uh, desire to to coalesce everything together and really organize it in one really prominent way sure um, and that's the part that sort of bothers me <laughs> a little bit because I I kind of enjoy um, living in the problem solving piece of things. 
And I enjoy kind of checking reality against my idea of what reality is. And sometimes with architecture, I feel like it can create just by design this holistic, you know, point of view that isn't actually real. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can see that. So it's a little bit of a devil's advocate kind of rebel moment. But I would say that's the one thing that Got it. challenges Great me answer. continuously <laughs> about the about the whole architecture world. Great answer. Um, so our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Michigan? Sure. And about your childhood? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's always fun to, when people are like, where are you from? It's always fun to kind of describe it. Um, when I meet someone who, who I say I'm from upper Michigan and they go, oh, wow. And they actually know where it is. I'm always, I always feel really special because it's, not a lot of people know much about it. Um, I think overall, the population of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is like less than 3% of the total oh, state. Really? Okay. And the roads are really bad and it snows <laughs> a lot. Um, Where's Kalamazoo? Is that in the lower or the that's upper? That's in the lower part. It is. Okay. All right. right. So when you grow up in <laughs> Upper Michigan, you call people from below the Mackinac Bridge, you call them trolls because they live <laughs> under the bridge. That's funny. Uh, and they call us Youpers because it's UP, Upper Peninsula. Okay. Uh, it's basically a mix of like Canada and Kentucky. <laughs> I think that probably speaks to it well. Definitely. Yeah. There was a lot of like um, homemade, you know, DIY before DIY was a thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, there was, as I was growing up and really finding uh, my interest in design, no one pays for design up there. They, you get free stuff. And you hack it together and you build something that's good enough. Okay. You don't pay someone else to think about a design for you. You design based <laughs> off of what you have access to. And um, that's who I grew up with. My family, people around me in my neighborhood. Um, it was always fun working with the neighborhoods in the city, like, because the city would have ordinances around <laughs> what people, <laughs> what building materials people could use and it's always a challenge um, within the the city limits. And I'm from a town called Iron Mountain. Oh. When I was there, it had like 12,000 people or so. It's now one of those kind of like suburban type areas. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of nature. And my dad was a mechanic, so I know a lot about cars. And we rebuilt our own house when I was a kid. So I got stuck helping with all of that which that why, i really enjoyed is that enjoyed. why you think you became a designer sort of all these i think so yeah i had my grandfather worked for henry ford putting cars together on the assembly line cool and my mom's an artist in all sorts of medias and my family's very musical so those are the sorts of medias that came like super easy to me okay um and i really like the idea of i knew that life was going to be hard work and i wanted to make sure that i was doing something fun because I knew it was going to be happening all sure, the time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to ask this question of guests with a design background. Can you describe your childhood home in detail? I mean, the fact that you rebuilt it, helped rebuild it yourself, I would assume you could do that. I could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of my, my favorite reads. I'm trying to remember the author, but it's called Poetics of Space. And it talks about that. It talks about the memories and character of your childhood home and how that affects your like psyche through the rest of your life. And yeah, 
just the stair that led to the basement. And uh, we rerouted the stair when we built an addition onto the house. I remember those details. All those details. Yeah, <laughs> that's that came funny. around. Yeah, that's absolutely. Funny. Yeah, we, we, you know, I know renovating my house, I know where every wire goes, every everything, you know, yeah. and it's kind of, I, I like knowing that about yeah. you know, a place I live, which is, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. So you, you describe your family as, you know, um, mechanic experts. Um, and the way that you look at design is similar. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about systems. I think, you know, everything, everything moves in systems. Um, everything's sort of a machine at the end of the day. I think of my team at work as a machine. I think of a, of a building as a machine for working or a house as a machine for living. And it has dynamic components and static components. Um, it has components that need to be switched out over time. I just like thinking about grouping um, functions and grouping aesthetic choices based on how the machine actually operates. Mm -hmm. I feel like you can, you can get really into the nitty gritty with that on the programming side. Sure. Um, you can also start to get into the nitty gritty on the finishing side as well. So I like to I like to think about it that way. Okay, I like that. And then, so when did you first come to New York City? So I came to New York City in 2010. Okay. October 10th, so 10 10 2010. <laughs> um, I'd been wanting to move to New York for the longest time. I came here for the first time when I was 17. Okay. On a high school trip. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh, I want to live here so bad. <laughs> and it took a while, but I I made the move. Um, I made it here and it's just been like beyond my wildest dreams. And where did you go to uh, school? So I went to an art school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin okay. called Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. Yep. It's about a 600 person school, um, really great like hands-on experience, small classroom sizes, you know, metal lab, wood lab, all sorts of um, space mm -hmm. and attention from teachers. And it was four hours away from home, so I like knew I wasn't going to get any surprise visits from my family, <laughs> but I could still kind of get back there um, sure. quickly in a day if I needed to. Okay. And yeah. did you major in interior design? Or? I did. It, the okay. program was actually called um, Interior Architecture and Design. It was it was accredited. It was not accredited in design or architecture, okay. <laughs> but I did um, achieve a, a BFA. Um, and had a little bit of a, the first year foundations year is a little bit more well-rounded, just, you know, basic art sort of background, which I loved. I feel like that was the bridge I needed to like really focus on making the decision to get into the architecture world. Got it. Okay. And then, so tell us about finding your first job and, and, and where you worked. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> um, when I left Milwaukee, I was working for a design build firm. It was a family owned business. They became very successful very quickly. I was given a lot of responsibility at a very young age and enjoyed all of it. Um, my clients, however, weren't, they weren't very, um, uh, they wouldn't let me challenge them. Okay. And I just remember time after time bringing great materials or really exciting digital element to the table and them saying, I think this is a little bit too progressive for our client base. And so I, I 
finally decided like if I really want to grow my career, I have to go to New York City. So I left right on after surviving that uh, economic crash in a way, like okay. a bunch of people were laid off from my firm. Um, you know, my firm sort of treated me like a young member of their family. They sat me down. Really not a good idea to leave right now. <laughs> like, are you sure you want to do this? We really highly suggest that you don't. Um, and I did, you know, because it was just time. Okay. And when I landed here, it was really hard to find work. I'm sure. Um, major part of that was having this very conservative work that I was doing in the Midwest as my portfolio mm -hmm. and not able to really find at that point firms that were willing to take a risk on someone like me. Uh, so I ended up uh, getting together with Aerotech and joined as sure. one of their consultants. And I worked at Perkins and Eastman uh, for a month uh, with Maureen. <laughs> and then the project <laughs> I was working on was done. So I had gotten released back out into the pond again. And then I got pulled into Ted Mudis and okay. I was working on several projects there. I remember just being so grateful to have a little cup on my desk with a pen and a scale. <laughs> you know, I just remember being like, oh, wow, like I don't ever want to take this for granted again. Sure. Like the ability to like actually do this for a living. Was that with Aerotech or that was direct working for So Moodis? I was with Aerotech as an employee there. And then after a few months, they were like, we just want you to come work here. Oh, that's great. Um, so I got to join the crew on that side and uh, work with Jacqueline and all the others um, for a couple years. And that was really my first getting my feet wet in New York City, you know, moment. In design. So how did you know that you wanted to, you know, as an as a designer early on, how did you know that the clients weren't right for you, that you wanted to kind of do more and push the envelope in a sense? It's just like this feeling I had inside. Um, I was utilized a lot as an example because I I was a millennial technically. Okay. And a lot of our clients were credit unions and banks. And their customers and members were literally dying. They were very old people. <laughs> and they're saying, how do we get the younger market? And my boss would kind of put me in front of them and be like, she's the younger market. That's Listen smart. to her. And I would talk about it. And I feel like it would gain some traction. But when I actually tried to implement it, there was just so much pushback and okay. lack of belief. Um and one of the actual projects that I got to be the most progressive on is a credit union in my hometown, which was really funny because even in Milwaukee, they're like, oh, it's a small little town. It's way up in the woods. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> and they actually let me be the most progressive out of any client. And I truly believe it's because they knew I was coming from there. That sure, was my town. Sure. And their customers were my friends and my family. So, um, yeah, it just it became clear that it wasn't I wasn't going to be able to get it there. Got it. OK, so what is I was reading something about what does push the envelope mean to you? Because I always people use that a lot. I'm just curious what it means to you. I like to have my like spidey senses out. Um, one of the reasons <laughs> I love living in New York so much is this this coast is where it all happens like things hit here first even when i was working in the midwest i was like on every blog possible on a daily basis trying to pick up trends um and i feel like you can really have a, a finger on the pulse here and i think it's our responsibility as designers to push the envelope to push people to new ways of thinking new ways of designing new ways of being sustainable uh and i think that we have to 
create that momentum and we have to sustain that momentum or the industry doesn't change. Right. Right. So, you know, it's almost like this inner drive that I have that I've always had to stay like on the shoulder of the wave. Sure. Sure. So in, in 2010, you move here, you take the leap, you decide, hey, that's it. I'm coming to New York City. I don't care if recession, no recession. Uh, you said you worked at, with Aerotech and kind of bounced around um, with, with them. But I, I read that you also worked at a bar, at a yeah. David Rockwell designed yeah. bar, so, which I, I love that. So, And there's a lot to be learned from from that type of, yes. of interaction with experience. So just tell us quickly about sure. that. Sure. I actually paid my way through college working in the service industry. Um, I worked in restaurants and I worked in hotels. I love working in hotels. Like to this day, I feel like the experience that I got has been more valuable than most experiences uh, that I've learned with my education, to be honest, because it's really all about working with people and creating a a space for people, um, which I feel like I do every day with my clients. So I I worked through through college. And then as I was saving up money to leave to New York, um, I also worked in in a hotel and I got this really great um, phrase in one of the training seminars. That's like there's a five foot, there's a 10 foot and a five foot rule when you're in a hotel. And if someone's 10 feet, if you're if you're 10 feet away from a guest, you have to acknowledge them visually. OK. And if you're five feet away from a guest, you need to verbally acknowledge them. Yeah. Right. So there's just this sense of awareness and just kind of humility. Um, so I love, I love using that. I use that every day. I use it out on the street. <laughs> I, I use like it with that. my clients. But when I moved to New York and I wasn't getting architecture work and I was watching my debit card just get swiped right the second you leave your house in New York, it's like cha-ching, cha-ching, <laughs> cha-ching. And I was like, man, I need to get a job until I can get a job. And I thought, well, if I'm going to work in the industry, I want to be inspired by the environment I'm in. And I'm in New York City, so I have access to all of these really beautiful venues that were designed, um, you know, by architects that I that I love and admire. So I went to a few with some resumes and and uh, the um, Inc. 48 Hotel on the west side was one of them. And I did my resume all like graphic design it had a really nice you know plastic case on it and it made an impression with the manager and they called me back oh nice and i started working there i didn't really have any manhattan bartending experience (laughs) and i asked my manager you know while after that like why he took a chance on me and he's like well your resume just looked really organized so i thought you'd be like a really organized person and we need that around here um he's like i could teach you to bartend so yeah, it was it was wonderful working um, working in that space. That's yeah, I'm sure, and that's and I love that about the five and the the five foot and ten foot rule. That's, yeah. Uh, and if you read, you know, sort of about Steve Jobs, you know, one he modeled Apple actually after the Four Seasons Hotel hmm. and Isidore Sharp, who created the Four Seasons and this whole idea of customer service, right? That you had to know people's name even yeah. before they arrived at the hotel to right. greet them, and it was always a sequential greeting throughout, and that you were acknowledged and all this sort of stuff. And it, that kind of thing is fascinating to absolutely. me. More people should do that and really pay attention yeah, to it. Yeah, absolutely. So you're at Ted Moodis and where do you go from there? So from Ted Moodis, um, I went back to Perkins Eastman actually. Oh. So I had been chatting with Maureen. Um, another opportunity came up with them. She remembered working with me for even a short amount of time and you know, they made an offer and I went on over there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and when do you end up at studios? So um, studios happened. I went to I went to Callison for a little bit to try to help them get a workplace studio off the ground. And then studios happened um, maybe like three or four years later. So I worked with a recruiter who had been contacting me. Um, okay. It was kind of bothersome. I was like, oh, stop calling me. Stop bothering me at work. And then they finally name dropped <laughs> who they were. <laughs> Representing, And I was like, well, why don't you just tell me that in the first place? <laughs> now we can talk. Um, and it was just a really great opportunity to utilize everything I've learned up to that point, um, you know, bring it to a highly competitive environment and work with some like supercharged, super talented individuals that taught me a lot. Um, and to work on some projects that actually let me feel like I could exercise those progressive demons with the clients. <laughs> so along the way, you're really figuring out sort of your your voice in workplace design, and it's become you know your concentration. Um, so and now you're the design director at at Vocon. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about workplace design that you that you enjoy, and then why do you think you were drawn to that? I was kind of just given it, you know, as my one of my first opportunities, like we're going to design this workplace for these folks who work at a bank. <laughs> and I loved just meeting every single person. I love talking about their customers and where they were coming from. We got to do these really cool geo maps and, yeah. you know, help the marketing team locate it on the right corner. And it really became a place that gets integrated into people's lives, you know, weekly, however however often people used to go to the bank, right? <laughs> um, and I remember too, like, oh, pretty soon you're going to be able to bank from your phone completely. That'll never happen. Um, so I just love that notion of like meeting a whole new group of people every time and seeing what makes that business click and seeing what their, what their troubles were and trying to help them solve them. And as I continued on in my career and started working with larger and larger organizations or really specialty organizations, I, that's what I love about it the most is like you get to pop open the hood every time and yeah. learn about how their machine works, right? And then the space that you're building and accommodating them in, it, it has to really work and jive with what their business goals are. Yeah. So that is the, ch the part of the challenge that I enjoy the most. Um, and then the placemaking side of it is really just bringing around that sensibility of who they are and their aspirations of who they want to be and how to give people like the space within that place to yeah. imagine themselves being better, greater, smarter, faster, however that works out for them. Yeah, for sure. And you do you get access to a lot of decision makers and and people at the heads of companies that, you know, most people only dream of talking to. And other than the fact that, OK, that, you know, the first time that you're going to meet them is sort of interesting. After that, they're a client and right. you've got to do you have more work to do than they do. Right. I mean, right. you've got to <laughs> present to them and they've got to make decisions. Right. And they're just like any other person at that point. And it's really it, I, that's one of the things I love about this profession is that you do meet so many interesting people and you see as you said sort of under the hood of every company mm -hmm. and they're all they're similar in some ways they're all different in some ways everyone's trying to achieve something else they treat their people differently and you get to kind of you get to kind of figure out what what you enjoy about all that stuff it's 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 a very very fascinating yeah. aspect of what we do yeah it's kind of nice to show up on site with adam silver and kind of help him locate where he wants his towel bar in <laughs> his bathroom right. and <laughs> 
you know, can we move the light switch a little bit over this way? Because I just feel like it's less awkward. Absolutely, yeah. Adam. Or, or telling someone like we had to tell Bob Iger once at Disney, no, we can't make any more changes because <laughs> everything is, you know, it, it, you're going to throw off the schedule. And and he said, OK, I guess that we're not making any more changes. So it's, uh, it's a powerful moment. Right yeah, there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we need to talk about your house. Mm-hmm. Um can you can you tell us a little bit about the significance of the van? Sure. Um, I was researching buying. So I grew up with vans. My family, oh, my dad always had a van. We would like, it was not cute. Like we would sleep in it in like the parking lot if we were going on a trip somewhere instead of getting a hotel. And I was always so frustrated by it and embarrassed. Um <laughs> And then I reached a certain age and I was like, man, you know what would be a good idea? A van that I could drive around and sleep in. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it in style. And uh, I look, this was years and years ago. Like, I, I wouldn't say van life wasn't around, but it like it was, it was still it wasn't it was around, but it like wasn't on the front page of the paper and magazines like it is now. But I really love nature. Um, living in the city is very inspiring. I obviously am here for my work, for my clients to get energized. But just growing up where I did, being in nature is a huge part of my life. And not having a vehicle to access that was problematic. Um, and I did want to be able to just go up into the woods and just unplug and be there for a few days. So I was like, let me get this van. And I searched for quite a while and I I didn't end up finding the one I want. And then I kind of gave up. And then I was on Instagram one night and I saw a picture of it and it said (laughs) for sale, 1967 Ford um, with like a pop top on it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And the posting was already like five weeks old. So I was like, there's no way this is available. So I'm like feverishly messaging this person. Is this still available? Yes, it is. Call me tomorrow. Um, so I ended up flying out there to, to Los Angeles to oh, wow. see it. I was in San Francisco for work, so I just got a little jumper okay. plane. I looked at it. I was like, I'll buy it. And then I had my cousin who lives down in um, in San Diego at the time drive up and make the purchase for me. <laughs> <laughs> so that I made sure that I could you know, capitalize on it. And she helped me out with that. And then I flew out to San Diego and drove it back here. Um, which I would never do again, understanding now how many problems that particular engine has. I'm sure. But you know, when you don't know any better, you just yeah. get carried on this like wave of grace <laughs> That's all the a, way. That's an amazing trip. though. Yeah, that- it was super fun. I brought my nephew with me. Um, you know, it was the first time he had seen the Pacific. Okay. So, and then... I had him, I flew him back to fix all my electrical wires <laughs> uh, a few months later. And then I said, here, now you see the Atlantic Ocean. So I gave, I gave you both. You have oh, that's great. Both sides. That's something I, I keep telling my wife. I keep threatening that we're going to, I'm going to take my two girls and it's just going to be the three of us and we're going to go across country, but we're going to rent a convertible. That's, that's I've decided we're mm. going to rent a convertible and just drive across country. That might get old. Yeah, it might. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Convertibles really aren't that great. So um, so that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, kind of finding the space to park your your van. Sure. Yeah, I, I went and I bought it and I brought it back and I was like, man, where am I going to put this thing? And it's all oh, just get a garage. It's going to be like 200 bucks a month or something. And it was ended up like almost $500 because it's a large vehicle. So then it lived under the BQE for a moment. And I was like, I really need to find a place to park this thing. 
And I remember talking to my brother about it. And he's like, why don't you just find a like cool studio apartment that has like a garage door? And I'm like, you're insane. Like, I'm sure there's places like that, but I can't afford them. Right. I'm not going to find one. And so I really tried to like not speak that negativity. Like I really spent weeks just being like, I could find one, though. And possible. yeah, and I, I met up with a with a broker out in Bushwick because I was like, let me just that's kind of the area where that might happen. <laughs> and I looked at a bunch of lofts with him and I was just he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm just not like I'm not seeing what I need. And he's like, what do you want? And I showed him the picture of the van and he's like, come with me. And we drove across the neighborhood and there it was under construction Okay. Like just exposed concrete brick on the inside. Walls were studded in, no drywall. He's like, now it's not done yet. And I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> That's great. And he's like trying to explain to me that it's going to feel a little bit more, you know, nice. And I'm like, I'm in the business. I already see it. I'm putting this here. I'm putting this here. Um, so I bothered him every single day until he finally took all my money. <laughs> um, and it's a rental. So I fought for it. Um but yeah, it's and that's where you live now. It's been amazing. Yeah, I'm still that's there. Awesome. It's a ground level garage with a big glass door. Um, it's got a, a 14 foot ceiling. So oh, I put a loft great. up over the top of, of the van. Her name's Bellflower. She lives in there with me. Um, she's a spare bedroom. <laughs> if I can see people that. come that's visit. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so it's great. I mean, I've always wanted to like build out a loft. I just couldn't get my you know stuff together earlier okay. in my life. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been great. It's been great to share the space with people who do breath work, friends of mine, meditation. Um, it's been an exciting, nice, a little oasis in Brooklyn. Okay, and you can, and you can travel with it, which is even better. Absolutely. Yeah, especially during COVID. So that, oh, yeah. I'm sure that was huge. So tell me a little bit about, uh, woman you facture. For sure. <laughs> So I guess, you know, growing up in the UP, very practically minded place, you know, whether you were a boy or a girl or whoever, you you did work that you needed to do to get things done. Um, and I found as I kind of moved on with my life that not uh, not a lot of other girls or women identifying people like got to live that way. And I realized that it was very special to like be able to be given an opportunity to work with tools or to build something for oneself or to fix the closet door that fell off the wheel instead of having to worry about someone else doing that. You take the initiative to do it yourself. And I started to see that kind of characteristic or trait play out for me in my in my professional world. And I started to see it maybe missing in some other, you know, women and women identifying persons that you can actually don't have to ask permission. You can actually get in there and start sure. working with your hands. Um, so I really wanted to start a program. And um, I looked into all of the insurances and equipment and rentals. I thought, you know, what would be easier for me <laughs> is to create these really bespoke workshop experiences um, that I partner with other agencies and we do it together. And I, I kind of bring the audience and they kind of pull back the the sheet and show us about you know, how, how things work. And we did one down at the classic car club most recently. We got to go under the hood of all these engines. Oh, that's cool. Um, and just bringing a group of women from all different backgrounds. Um, we did a sawmilling one up in Kingston. So we cut a tree down, we cut it into boards, uh, from someone's yard, which then got donated to this, um, really great New York Heartwoods, uh, company that we were partnering with. And they make really beautiful furniture out of this urban fell, 
lumber. So we got to be a part of that like whole closed loop experience. Sure. And it's just really fulfilling. It's it's really helpful. Um, you know, one of my friends who's a movie director at the car workshop, we're, we're watching this video about how an internal combustion engine works. And she's like, this whole time I've been putting gas in my car and I had no idea that it was like thousands of mini explosions every second going on. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, that's cool. I'm like, that's cool. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, that could help her in her in her work. Like that could help her understand. Maybe she's going to put some sort of cool car chase in one of her films now. Like, yeah. I don't know. But it really um, has been a really fulfilling way to kind of reach out and give back that permission to, okay. to do and make and build. That, that's extraordinary. Congratulations. Thank that's, you. Uh, that's great. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. Uh, so part of what we do here is take a critical look at how architects work with design, how architects and designers work with their clients and the process of how we deliver projects. Um, you have a unique perspective uh, working sort of as a pure interior workplace designer um, in the in the last few years. So in your opinion, you know, what do architects do well and, and what do they do wrong and what, what's broken with the process? I just think the... The process is not very modern. It, it seems to me that all sorts of services and product deliveries out there in the world today are taking advantage of, you know, reinventing themselves. And the language of our contracts can be stifling. Sure. Um, the process that we sort of force all clients to go through doesn't always make sense. Um I think there's a lot more opportunity for creativity in the process. And of course it has to, it all has to come down to dollars and cents. So, <laughs> you know, as a service industry where we're really billing per hour, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a fine balance that's required. But I, I do think like our industry definitely needs an overhaul. Um, it needs to feel more approachable. It needs to collaborate more with itself, sure. similar right. to what you're doing, which I think <laughs> is so fantastic. And I think that's crucial. Oh, thank you. Um, because we all succeed together or we all kind of an like antiquate together. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and having d doing this podcast now for a while, it's, you know, people are very open to this conversation and this idea that, yes, we're competitors, but in the end, who cares, right? We need, we all want to move the profession forward in some way. So I guess for you as, a, you know, I'll pose this question to you as the interior designer, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I know we get that a, a, this a little bit here is how do architects and interior designers specifically communicate better? Because I can say that here we'll we'll sometimes have this sort of butting of heads of the interiors versus the architects, right? Mm -hmm. How do we kind of get past that? I mean, in my experiences with this, because I've 
I've been on both sides of the coin. I've been an interiors person in the interiors heavy firm and I've been the interiors person in the architect heavy firm. And I believe the best way is for everyone to just ask more questions. Um, You know, there's, there's so much that we don't know and that we can learn from each other and asking questions versus telling like forcing solutions uh, it really disarms people and it gives people the opportunity to explain, you know, the thinking behind their, their actions or their suggestions. And I have found that it creates a more collaborative environment when you do that. Um, and it's a way to kind of unlock any lock <laughs> in any organization with any individual, regardless of what personality type they are, how much experience they have is to just take a step back and question it like why are we doing it that way yeah and you might find that you agree um in some cases where you i've I've never done it that way i've always done it this way this is what's more important (laughs) to just take a moment and really explore that together yeah i see here it's it's always it always like shocks me when i hear oh the interior designer isn't getting along with the architect on the project and i think but we're all in the same company like i don't know we need each other (laughs) right Exactly. And so what we've tried to do here is really kind of make sure that we're all working on each other's projects. Architects mm-hmm. work on interiors jobs, interiors work on because arch- everyone brings a different perspective to the to the project. Absolutely. And it's a more well-rounded perspective anyway. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. That's always the best. <clears throat> Where do you see, you know, um, technology in the process and how it can help? I'm waiting for it. <laughs> um. It boggles my mind. Like, think about it a lot. I know, like, I don't have the resources at my hand to develop what I think maybe needs to be developed, but I'm ready and willing to use it uh, right. when when that <laughs> that happens for us. And I think it all kind of funnels back into what I was talking about earlier around this kind of old school, archaic way of doing things, of working with clients. Um, I love the notion of being able to allow clients to um, kind of select through a digital process how they want to give us the information we need to do the job. Um, Ultimately, I think technology only enhances the ability of the designer. It doesn't replace the ability of the designer. Um, You know, if I were going to do 15 different test fits, it would take me quite a while. But if I could generate them based on a set of constraints quickly, I could use my skills, my eye, and my artistry to just select between really great options. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's that's where I see it going, and that's where I want it to go. Uh, but it is a little frustrating to be like living and breathing in this industry and not have the access to the development of those tools just yeah. basically because I think of how the finances break down in our industry. Yeah. In the end you, yeah, because the the project doesn't allow for any room for exploration into anything other than the project itself. So, yeah. And yep. more and more every day it gets tighter and tighter. I, I t- especially after COVID, you know, it's kind of yeah. all, all compressed now even more. Um, so we have a responsibility as designers to face climate change and, you know, I think we can lead this effort. How do you think, you know, you as an interior designer can help take part in that task? I have given up on my like demands for new furniture, for branded design. I'm erring towards simplicity. Hmm. If if a client comes to me and says, I purchased really beautiful classic furniture about five years ago and it's still wonderful, 
I'm very excited to reuse that very much so. Um, and it's all about being strategic, you know, within the design and making sure that they feel their space has been refreshed and thoughtful. But, you know, my attitude around reusing things and kind of working against the supply chain problem with our contractors is like my new mission, <laughs> um, that it feels really good to do those sorts of things. And that's more important to me than what it looks like in the photograph at the end. Sure. Um, and that and that can go in many ways. And especially after COVID and thinking about modularity for, for clients that are saying, gosh, well, we don't know what we need. <laughs> right. Like, we don't know what we need. And I'm pretty sure in a year from now, it's not going to be right. Well, you know, I, I went on this really wonderful kind of forestry trip uh, with Trilock's workshop. And they talked about like the regeneration of a natural forest and carbon, uh, you know, carbon sinks, carbon allocation, timber framing, things like that. And they describe the shell and the foundation of a building as being a hundred year investment. And then as you go down into the interior, it could be like a six month investment for some of our clients. And I think it's our responsibility as designers to create the inside as a 40 plus year investment. Yeah. You know, and so when we're working with some of our landlords right now, they kind of like that too, right? Because no one likes having to to let a tenant go mm-hmm. and then go through a bunch of TI and time to get another tenant in. It's a yeah. lose-lose situation. So, uh, you know, I really feel like things are going that way and it's definitely been my inspiration for what materials I'm specifying, definitely trying to get wood in as much as possible. Sure. Um so, yeah, I think it's just all about the circular conversation. Yep. Yeah. We have some clients, too, that are very interested in reusing what they had. And that was never a conversation we would ever have had. You know, it was always assumed you move, you throw everything out, and you start fresh. Right. You know, which never made sense to me because, I mean, when you move a house, you know, your own personal house, you don't throw everything out and start over every time. Just costs so, more. Yeah, it costs just, more to, to save things. Yeah. And until we continue to do it and normalize it, it like the cost factor won't reduce. Right. Because we drive that market. Right. As designers and specifiers. Yeah. Agreed. So kind of bringing it all back around, uh, if you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned, what might you have changed? I probably would have left Wisconsin and come to New York to go to school. Okay. It, it was just like I was way too afraid to do that. I had a lot of fear around it. I honestly don't know like if that would have changed my career. <laughs> right. I think it would have just got me, you know, into where I wanted to be sooner. Um, but no, it's been a wonderful journey and I'm so grateful. I feel like I feel like I'm like always in good favor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it it could have gone, you know, a lot of people move to New York and they, they just don't make it. They don't stick around. Um, and I have found that I've always had what I need to take care of myself. And I found a lot of like respect and kindness in this community. Yeah, for sure. And the relationships that we have with each other. Um, I've really relied on those and I've asked for help many times and many times help was just so freely and kindly given. So this community means a lot to me. I think we're all very keen and serious in what we're doing and we're competitive. But I also think that fundamentally, you know, as New Yorkers in the design community, like we really do care about like lifting the whole experience for all of us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I definitely feel that. 
Gene, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Um, and thanks for sharing your unique story and everything about you, which I find absolutely fascinating. So uh, to read more, uh, to see and read more about Jean, uh, you can find her on her own website. As a matter of fact, jeanchandler.com. Uh, and for more about Women Ufacture, it's www.womenufacture.com. Um, yeah. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you very it. much for yeah, having me. Great. Appreciate you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right.